1: Hello and welcome, or should I say welcome back, to the Indie Football Podcast. It is Tuesday the 18th of June. I am your interim host of the pod, Jack Pitbrook, and I'm joined today by independent journalist Sam Lovett. Hello. And Chief Football Writer Miguel Delaney. Good afternoon. Uh, really good to have you guys back. It's been a few weeks since we did one of those yeah. because we were away at the Champions League final and the Nations League finals, which seems an awful long time ago yeah. now away now. How long
2: ago was the Nations League? Is that nine I days? I don't know. Well, I, anyway? <laughs> I can't remember anymore. I spent something like
1: it. 10 out of 12 days uh, sharing flat with Miguel. Uh, it was fun. I thought we, we had, had a really nice time. We had a lovely right? time. Yeah, uh, saw some saw some really good football. Saw some pretty bad football. Watched Godzilla film. Yeah. Uh, we watched... Yeah, we watched Godzilla... With Portuguese subtitles.
2: No, no, uh, the first one, the one with Brian Cranston. Oh, okay,
1: it's really, really good. It's got an amazing cast. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> it's got really good special effects. And Godzilla, basically, there are these like aliens. Some- I don't really know what they are. M- M- Mutos in the yeah, Godzilla. Yeah, and then, um, <laughs> yeah. but Godzilla is a goodie and he yeah. just destroys them all. Well, humans, I know, too, just,
2: it? just to clarify. We, we we only stumbled upon this because we were looking for the Women's World Cup on Portuguese TV, and they weren't showing it.
1: They weren't showing that. Yeah, I know. No. They were showing uh, what they called "O Talentoso Mister Ripley." <laughs> Uh, But unfortunately, that was Portuguese (laughs) dubbing rather than uh, subtitles, which meant we we couldn't really understand it. Good film, (laughs) Oh Talentoso, terribly. Maybe it's because we were going mad with like covering football fever, but there Mm. was just something so funny about that name of the film Mm. at the time. Anyway, enough of in jokes. Um, Women's World Cup is going on as well, and it's. I think it's really interesting in it, in and of itself because it's a World Cup. It's also really interesting, I think, from the perspective of like, how do we cover it? Do we cover yeah. it enough? Why like, do we care about it enough? How much do people care? Those kind of questions, which I think are always there with the Women's World Cup. Like, Speaking personally, I've watched a few games, which I've really enjoyed, but I don't feel like I'm fully on top of what's going on yeah. all the time. I,
2: I, I watched a lot of it. Uh, well... Probably not, um, well, actually, to be honest, I haven't done a uh, kind of a Euros or World Cup, men's Euros or World Cup, not that since 2006. so It's different to compare now mm-hmm. whether you immerse yourself in that, in, in how uh, much of it. But what, I mean, it is impossible to escape the sense that hangs over almost every game, basically, that it, this is cause, because it's been so built up as a breakthrough tournament that I think almost everything is framed in that, particularly around the US WNT. Mm.
1: Yeah, like I've um, so last night I watched France Nigeria, which that was a really which was yeah like it was. I mean, I don't I don't know if you've seen, but basically France. Uh, so Wendy Renard missed a penalty for France with about 15 minutes left. She hit the post, but then the Nigerian keeper and Gozie was said to have like been just in front of her line when it was taken, and VAR. I've never seen this before with VAR. VAR ordered a retake, mm. which was ridiculous because she was so close to her line that I thought, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. if you give that, like, if you penalize that decision, then you would have to penalize, like, every penalty ever taken. And I saw in the BBC report, it said that, like, no, there are new rules which said that, like, some of the keeper's feet have to be touching the line mm-hmm. at any yeah. given point. But to me, it just felt like one of those, it's like, uh, it was like one of those, like, whether it's the VAR handball rule or the VAR like off the offside against Jesse Lingard and Gimaresh in the Nations League semi, it's like this. I just don't think we need that level of like specificity and yeah, fussiness over measuring. I mean,
2: I, also, I think it was Aidan O'Hara of the Irish Independent make the point last night like, that ultimately this is the problem with all these systems: is that even if you're pro VAR and it's theoretically very good to. To redecide decisions like uh, m- massive things like say the on Ball or whatever or Maradona, um, ultimately what it, what will inevitably happen it will it will come down to incidents of mere millimeters mm. and that, and that's where the issues arise that it's kind of it's just it, and it also it's just be, be, essentially because it's um, because we have tech, because it's technological. It comes down to such millimeters in a way that we—it comes down to a pedantry that we couldn't have previously conceived of, really. Yeah, that's yeah.
1: It's like a new way of looking at football, basically, isn't it? Because mm. fo- football was never, football isn't never really been measured in that small. You know, it's, me- it's never really been measured and analyzed mm. like that. that. That's that finally.
3: I was going to say, Mix, to go back to the point you made earlier about the um, how it's being touted as sort of a, a breakthrough yeah. sort of for the women's game. Do you think, as a result of this label that it's been handed, that when certain games maybe don't live up to hyper expectation that kind of leads to a disappointment um and we're sort of maybe judging it through the wrong sort of lens so in, some people are it.
2: maybe i mean you do see that like if there's a bad game i mean with is social media and uh, certain people who, who are predisposed to the only way oh this is rubbish overlooking the fact that uh, 2018 world cup as well a lot of bad games yeah. it's just the nature of a tournament um but but, but that, that almost feels part of it that it's so much of it is instantly compared, even the fact that we're having this conversation yeah. now, our first of the tournament, about this, so so much of the uh, of the coverage never really comes back to some sort of comparison. This is the
3: point we were making earlier, wasn't it? Yeah. In the sense of why aren't we educated enough, um, perhaps, about the women's game, it's because maybe there's certain elements, in the mainstream media as well, who are kind of obsessed mm-hmm. in drawing comparison with the men's and the women's games, when we shouldn't necessarily be doing that, we should be treating them as our own separate entity. Um, I kind of like look at women's, tennis and how it's so unpredictable you get all mm. these big personality clashes and whatnot people kind of appreciate uh the women's women's tennis for that for these sort of different narratives and threads so i feel
2: like but then it has, it has like decades more yeah that's of, true uh, but i
3: think that may perhaps comes with the media coverage i feel in the coming years you know when it does when the coverage has increased which we've seen already you are going to start to get these emerging threads and and story plots that the public starts yeah, to focus yeah. on more and which pulls more of the well, public well,
2: in. Well, also, what's, what's likely to happen, it seems, is that the major European clubs, the super clubs if you like, are going to start taking it properly seriously. Yeah. So which
1: our p- friend uh, our friend Josh Robinson wrote a really, really good piece about this in the Wall Street Journal the other day, mm. which I would recommend to anybody who wants a kind of, like, a sense of what, like, the bigger story is behind the Women's World Cup. And he made the point that now that, like, City, he said City, Lyon, Juve, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona... Mm-hmm. Between them, who provided like I think he said more players to the World Cup than I think the US the US Women's Soccer League has done, mm. um, and even like a big chunk of the goals in this tournament have been scored by yeah. players who play for Leon, Leon and Juve. Mm-hmm. so. Like, traditionally, the USA would dominate this because yeah. the USA had the best-funded and equipped women's team. But now that the European clubs are taking it seriously, this means that all the European national sides, yeah. most of whose players play in those clubs and who are suddenly feeling the benefits of professionalism, training,
2: conditioning, all the stuff which they didn't have in the past, these teams are going to overtake yeah, the yeah. Americans. Uh, there's a interesting dynamic there. And from that sense, I actually find the, kind of, the story around the US team absolutely fascinating because there's this wider debate about what they represent what they're fighting against equality within within their own federation um, and yet then suddenly transposed into their own tournament they are like they're a commercial juggernaut beyond anything else in the sport mm. I think, as Ken Early put it to me, basically they're Hillary Clinton in, in football form she's uh, like yeah. basically a group these massively privileged white women Uh, That's a debate that's come up as well about the representation team. Ultimately, it comes down to a real issue with women's football in terms of given the lack of facilities in so many countries, these are from f- basically from backgrounds where they could afford, especially with the American pay-to-play system. Mm. And, and that, that, that's a difference that actually has come up. It's been visible in the, in the tournament itself.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, the story of sport is that, like, amateur, amateur sports or amateurish sports have, you know, are dominated by privileged players. Like, mm-hmm. you can see that in almost any sport ever played. And it's only p- professionalism is really the only way you get a broader, sco- broader yeah. scope of society playing your game. Um, at the top level. And that's but it will be interesting to see whether in time that means that like the increasing push towards professionalism in Europe changes the game. So one another thing that I think is noticed that I'd be really interested to hear if, if I've got the wrong end of the stick here. Um, like, I think a lot of the women's teams seem to be comparatively older than the men's teams. maybe, yeah, than men's football, perhaps, because, you know, they uh, the the fact that some of these sports haven't been, or some of these teams haven't been so professional means that they uh, it takes a bit longer for like the best players to come through, yeah, yeah, and they haven't had the benefit of the same kind of very, very intensive academy system that we see yeah. in the mail game. Well, also,
2: in, in the mail game, everything is so... It's got to the point where everything in the mail game is so focused right now, down to the point that uh, players who are younger have basically a level of coaching that, uh, two decades ago w- wouldn't have been available even to kind of like some of, the, some of the very best players in the world. So it feels like the... the the men's game is more advanced in that degree as well. Even to the point that so many major clubs are now, they don't really look at 26, 27 year olds anymore. They look at 22, 23 year olds.
1: Yeah, Yeah, completely. Well, I think it's, yeah, it's going to be good. And I I hope England win, although I- What what have you made of England so far? So I actually missed the first game, missed the Scotland game, Hmm. but we watched, Miguel and I watched the Argentina game together. And I I thought England played really well. Like Jodie Taylor's goal was really good. (laughs) Created lots and lots of chances. the Argentina keeper, Correa was great, and on another day we would have won by more.
2: It, did, it didn't feel like it was going to be one of those classic England nights, actually, in a negative sense. So for them, even to, and given the, the way the keep... Quite,
3: quite cagey, and yeah. sort of having to be quite sort of, patient and, and persistent. Um, yeah, the game got
2: increasingly, increasingly kind of nervous as it went on, and they did get like, a, and the keeper was playing really yeah. well, Correa. But.
3: but what I was saying to you earlier, Jack, about how there's been this shift um, across football as a whole from direct, sort of. Direct, uh, sort of approach to more possession based and patient um and how neville has taken it from samson who was very yeah, counter-attacking yeah. In, in what in the philosophy he sort of tried to sort of you know embed in the team to this very patient playing from side to side it's like was um was sort of one of that completed the most most passes um oh, yeah. for, in, the Argent, in the argentina game um, so you can see that there's more of a focus on sort of Building at play, which is kind of what's happening across Europe as a whole, isn't it? And across all football, e- England DNA. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I'm, the one thing I'm not sure about is Neville's. Um, looks like as he looks like someone's been hired for for like a stag party as a Gareth Southgate lookalike. <laughs> uh, but I you so know, think it's that, deliberate that wearing is, the three uh, yeah, piece. That has to be, that, you know, that is, that, is, that is itself England DNA. Yeah. That is all the teams representing the same ethos. Um, but the other, th- I mean, it, the interesting, this has actually turned out into quite an effective segue. It will be interesting to, to see if AD Boothroy dresses the same way this <laughs> evening when England's 21s start their campaign against France in Cesena in Italy. Um, I think it's shaping up to be a really interesting tournament, for 21s. So, like, this is, it's a pretty good group. Uh, England don't have the best record in the twenty ones. The last few years, it's been a while since I think they really challenged. Actually, a lot of those mm. struggles came under Gareth Southgate. But I'm there are some exciting players here, and it's also doubly exciting because like the England men's team are on like men's senior team are on such a big upswing at the moment, yeah. and we've got what it's is almost clean. a home Euros next summer. Means that like if James Madison or Fikayo Tomori or Mason Mount or Phil Foden has an amazing tournament, and then they are in the they get into the England squad for the Bulgaria and Kosovo games in September, then in a year's time, these guys will be playing at Wembley in the Eurofinals, yep. perhaps. So that's why the stakes are so high and why it kind of, I, I mean, maybe I'm just overselling it because this is the piece I wrote this morning, but it
3: feels like, uh, you know, the stakes are really, really high for what could be a massive moment in these guys' yeah. careers. I mean, as, as you said in the piece, the focus is, is in midfield, um, given the issues that England, the senior team has, You know, in that department, this is an opportunity, isn't it, for the the likes of Foden, Madison, uh, Winks, to sort of prove their credentials, Mm -hmm. um, sort of, you know, push on. Yeah,
1: like Madison, you know, I think
3: a fair bit's been written about Madison this
1: year, but he's a really interesting one. Like Manchester United want him this summer. I think he'd cost 60 or 70 million, but I don't think we should rule that out. He created more chances than anyone else in Europe this year, which is amazing when you think he's playing the top flight football for the first time in his career and he's playing in a team which were like, probably fancied at the start of the season to come 10th. So he's clearly shown that he can do it. Although I do think there is like a lingering suspicion that Southgate might not be that keen on him. Uh, going back to the fact that Southgate, remember, called Madison up to the senior squad last October for the mm-hmm. Croatia and Spain away games, the Nations League, didn't use him. And then he found himself back in the 21s for the next few months.
3: Is that Do you think that mark? Might- come into this idea of wanting to sort of curb his, his ego a little bit maybe um, so that
1: that is a theory that's a theory uh i don't i've got no evidence to suggest that
3: that's true yeah. but that's it but th- there's a lot to be said for not wanting these players to get ahead of themselves yeah t- totally to you know at an early age uh, to sort of keep them on a sort of pedestal and to keep them grounded um so i feel in that sense southgate is probably right to kind of keep them on a a leash
1: a little bit, yeah. maybe I don't know. So I, I I asked Southgate about this at a uh, England press conference a while ago, and he the the answer he gave me is that well England don't play with a ten and Madison's a ten, yeah. so there's not really a place for him in the squad, which I I don't fully buy as an explanation just because like you know Deli Ali is basically a ten or a second striker and yet they squeeze him into midfield and if Deli Alley can play in that central midfield role. In the four-three-three, then so can, then so can Madison. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of yeah I didn't fully buy the explanation, but I do think going forward, you know, I'd be shocked if he's not in the in the England squad over the next year or so. And then of course you have got Foden, mm-hmm. uh, who only, you know has played much less senior football than Madison. He's a few years younger. He's still only nineteen, but is you know he's part of the England seventeen World Cup winners from twenty seventeen, uh, and Guardiola seems to love him and has played you know, played him a few times last year, including famously in
3: the 1-0 Premier League win over Tottenham in April. That
2: is basically his career moment at City now, isn't it? Eh? Yeah, that diving header.
3: Yeah. Uh, at the Euros, what, what do you think the plan will be in terms of deploying either Winks, uh, Winks isn't in the squad for the, sorry. Sorry, for the Euros. Oh, my um, bad. Oh, uh, I think it'll be a
1: thinness. 4-2-3-1 um, with Madison as a 10. I actually don't know who Will be sitting whether it be Foden and like a holding player. I actually, off the top of my head, couldn't tell you exactly who mm. the holding midfielders in the squad are. Um, but there's you know, there's exciting players in other positions as well. Like you know, Fikayo Tomori was player of the season at Derby this year and you know, was probably in with a shout of playing for Chelsea next year because of their transfer ban. Yeah. Uh, Jake Clark Salter, I think, is the captain. Uh, of the 21s. Mason Mount again had a fantastic year on loan from Chelsea to Derby. Dominic Calvert-Lewin's done well when he's had a chance at Everton. Um, Tammy Abraham was pretty important to Aston Villa getting promoted with the goals Mm. that he scored in the second half of the campaign um, under Dean Smith. So I do think that England have got like exciting players in lots of positions. And that's why I think it's shaping up to be a really good tournament. And of course, Angus Gunn and Goal, now it's, uh, you know, England don't really have much competition to put to Pickford. Like Pickford's one of those players who, mm-hmm. I think he's not been great this year at Everton. And if he'd had more, if there was a challenger to him, he might be under yeah, pressure, but it's not. But then if Gunn can have a good 21s in the summer and then ha- do well for Saints next year, then maybe, you know, there'll be a conversation about a challenge to Pickford, um, which is why I think I think it's quite exciting. Uh, but while all this happens, club football is rumbling away back on the background. Miguel, you're the club football expert. <laughs> uh, Pogba, Neymar, what's what, what's happening?
2: Um, both want out of their clubs, but it's. Well, I actually PSG are probably more disposed to selling. Does Neymar want out, or is he living the dream? I think he wants out <laughs> at this point. He's kind of fed up there. Also, I do wonder. I mean, there's I've done a piece today for the Independent about how. Uh, there's a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of people, both in PSG and around Neymar, are now wondering where, a few, where his career is going in the right direction. Um, He's
1: making some bad lifestyle decisions.
2: Yes, uh, there's a lot of talk about he doesn't train as hard. Uh, they at the injuries he gets, how self-indulgent his lifestyle is, um, and now apparently he wants to go to Barcelona. And you'd have to, match, although given this, is a, this is a club that had Ronaldinho's history there. But you'd have to imagine at least Barça would sharpen him a bit. But it does feel he needs a change. Pogba definitely feels he needs a change. Um, United's official stance is they won't sell him, but I think that could change if they get oh, well over 150 million. But yeah, are Real Madrid the only option for Pogba? Uh, no, Juventus and PSG. Are. Oh well, what can you like? In fact, in fact Real Madrid would probably can, pay the
1: least. Can you break it down in terms of like probabilities from here? <laughs> what's, what's the likeliest outcome?
2: <laughs> See, you, you Real Madrid. That that's going to come down to Pogba almost making massive. Massive sacrifices, both in terms of wage, in terms of your transfer request, which brings all sorts of clauses. In terms of um, uh, maybe Madrid as well having to offer a player in, so I actually think at the moment there's a bit too much to align for that to happen. Uh, would, would Real have to like shift Bale or someone to go? Get- yes, and ideally they'd shift Bale onto United, but yeah, surely even United at this point.
3: But from Pogba's perspective, he looks at what's happened with Neymar and sort of the steps mm. that he's taken. Uh, Backward steps that he's taken um, at PSG. Surely, he <laughs> why why would he want to go there? <laughs> why would would Pogba? Well, I mean, what? Yeah, I, think, the, I, think, the, I think there's no offer p- of Champions League well, as, as they've proved so far. They've you know they've struggled in Europe. Um, so I, I just can't see what he'd be replacing at PSG for what he's got at United. If that makes sense.
2: From um, from Pogba's point of view, from because guys PSG. I don't think it's so much about. <laughs> Whether PSG or preference, I think they're below Juventus and Real Madrid. It's just about wanting to get out of United. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, it does great. actually come. To this, someone suggested to me last night, but it does feel now as if Pogba has always had a three-year plan. Of United, and this was never really the oh, long okay. haul.
1: I have to say, like you know, this is not speaking from a position mm. of information, but I always, I always thought he'd end up at PSG just because yeah. it's such a kind of it's Parisian. such a compelling, compelling story for PSG, mm. right? Like the best footballer Paris has produced since. Kylian Mbappe. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the best footballer of his generation, <laughs> before pre Mbappe, Mbappe, yeah. you know, um Bringing the boy from the Bonliers back to PSG. And also, I kind of thought that, like... Um, I thought that... Put it like this. I don't think Pogba would be put off by the fact it's a joke league. Yeah, yeah. I think he'd think, well, well, you know, money, fame, trophies, Champions League knockout rounds.
2: Sit in the centre, play a few 30-yard passes. Yeah. This, is, this is great. Yeah, do it. You know, do it <laughs>
1: Do a Zidane spin. Yeah. Ping one in the top corner against Valenciennes. <laughs> like skip past a bunch of farmers. Like, you know. can say that? You can <laughs> skip a farm of Farmers like that is very. Uh... Lifting, <laughs> I'll let that out Don't li- worry. Li- lifting the Orangina League for the fourth <laughs> time in a row. I just thought it would appeal to Pogba. I thought. Not I this. I don't think he'd be like, oh no, that's not for me. That's not challenging. That, that I think.
2: Mean, he, I think he would revel in like the fame and adulation that, of does p- that, PSG. Does that mean you inherently question Pogba's? competitive character a bit yeah <laughs> I, and I, i've
1: always been pro-pogba but uh, you know what i feel like i feel like sometimes you have to accept that uh mate he's not kind of what i was hoping
2: he'd be i, I do feel a bit of sympathy for him and i don't obviously he's not blameless but it's just a feel that, that whole united signing was basically just the wrong move in all parts united sign him to be basically a driving force when he was never ready to be a driving force yeah um, and I, and so and he's
1: been like he's been let like down by the managers as well, like Jose, yeah, Jose and Solskjaer over three years, and you just think, I just think if he if he was lucky enough to be managed by Pochettino, Klopp, or Guardiola, yeah, yeah. or Conte, or Conte again, he would be a much better player. Yeah, yeah, and that's not his fault. Yeah, that's true. Sorry, are we going to have to edit out the word I just said? Aren't we,
2: Farmers? Yeah, no, I don't think so. No. It's okay, sorry. it wasn't
1: rude, I was just, I was like, <laughs> farmers, uh, yes. I was ironizing people who know less about Ligue than me. I'm actually yeah. a bit of a Ligue 1 expert. Yeah. This is
2: from the man who's gone to like, you know, who, who, what, what characters we met in Ligue 1, you know, but yeah, like Shelny's entire yeah. background. Everybody?
1: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Ligue fan, Lille.
2: You've done loads of stuff with, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, okay, so we got <laughs> one
1: more topic today, but it's quite a big one. Uh, fantastic new film about Diego Maradona. Uh, so in a few minutes, we're going to play a interview, which Jonathan Liu, who is not here at the moment, did with the director, which is a really, really interesting interview. But first, we're going to talk about the film a little bit ourselves, because uh, Miguel, you've seen it. I saw yeah. a bit of it
3: with you
2: on your laptop. Um, I've
3: yet to see it. It's really very, good. Very good. Very sense good. Sense Miguel, it. what did you
2: think? Um, I was, uh, the, f- the first time I watched it, I had to write a piece on it. So it's kind of like notes and things like that. So probably in that weird way, didn't didn't just watch it as a film. It's also my laptop. Um, the second time I watched it, more just because sit there and kind of okay, I'll watch it properly now because I've actually written the piece mm. and I loved it. Yeah. Um, like the first time, I was I was maybe looking at it too critically and thought he was a bit too soft and Maradona as a person, which maybe I think is a criticism that still stands. But I think that's fair enough because the documentary is genuinely brilliant. Although since um, as if the uh, the director has since told me on on Twitter that. I should not watch it on my laptop, I should watch it on a big screen. Oh. That makes a massive difference.
1: Oh wow, well, uh, uh, yeah, because I, I would. I now want to go and see it on a big screen. Because yeah. like, the footage, like, I, you know, just for, I watched about 45 minutes of it, I think yeah. it was on Friday night after the England game. Um, the footage is amazing, yeah. like, it's so good. It's like him training in Naples, him just like on the plane, yeah. him in dressing rooms, him with his girlfriends, him with his dad, him with his brother. It's so, like the up close, you're not used to getting that much up closeness yeah. from like old football because it, you think, you know, nowadays we see everything obviously because everyone puts it on their Instagram story. Yeah. But it's amazing to see like, <laughs> oh wow, that's yeah. what it was actually
2: like to win the 1986 yeah. World Cup. Well, World Cup. I, I mean, what's also, like, this comes up in Johnny's interview, It uh, was gonna play after this, but um, basically for that those four years, whatever it was, um, Maradona's agent who he fell out with, uh, Z- Spieler, who's a quite an interesting character himself, he German. no, he was. I think obviously of, of kind of European descent, a liberal group, and uh, he was a middle class kid in Argentina. Oh, cool. Who just who I think he he, had, he suffered from depression when he was young because he had polio and got, had a, had a kind of and uh, couldn't wa- and couldn't walk uh, without, without aids, um, and his brother died young, and apparently the only thing that brought him out of his depression out of his room was seeing being told you want to see this kid he is amazing, and it was Maradona, and he befriended Maradona true basically but giving him things that Maradona couldn't afford, like pizza and Coke, mm. Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola. Um, although not libelous in this instance. Um, <laughs> uh, but so I'd say they became, um, they basically became, he became Maradona's agent. But So one of the things they do, because I suppose they, he recognized the rise of potential genius was basically set up these cameramen around Marathon at all moments of his life. So there's this this amazing trove of footage. And for years, it was missing. And for the documentary,
3: they somehow came across. He explains it to Johnny. They found it in the back of a a car, was it? Or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, they sort of uncovered, like you said, the trove. But what was really interesting, um, reading in, in Johnny's interview, was how... Um, the director's approach to dealing with Maradona yeah. it, because he was so aloof and so distant in so many sort of the dealings and meetings he had with him he said to himself well I'm going to approach it um, as if <laughs> as if he's dead like like he did with yeah, Amy yeah, and yeah. Senna um, he'd put together this big document the whole film together and then he'd use what he could he'd scramble the intervals he, he could use um, and sort of use those to just fill in the spaces basically
1: yeah, yeah. It's a really, really great film. I look forward to seeing it again properly. And, uh, yeah, enjoy the
0: interview with Johnny, and we'll be back after that. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's has the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.
4: Um, Thanks your time. Uh, so this is basically for, for our um, our, podcast, our yes. podcast. So we're going to have a little chat about the film. Okay. And then have a little studio discussion in the, in the studio about about Maradona's like legacy generally. Cool. Uh, but yeah, yeah, nice nice way to kind of commemorate the release of the film. Yeah. Uh, proud of it?
5: I yeah. I, um. It's a weird one because I make these films and then you're kind of now waiting for the response so there's a little moment of saying well what do people think because um, he's sort of handing it over um, but I think he's such a challenging character he's such a kind of tricky person to deal with so in a way I think making a film about him and trying to in any way get it to come together is an achievement in itself um, but yeah I'm, I'm kind of open to what, what, what do you think what did you make of him?
4: Uh, well I really enjoyed the film I thought it was, uh, a tough watch at times, uh, you know, in common with Senna and, and Amy, there were parts where, you know, it just felt unbearably sad. Mm, mm. Um, but I do think you get an insight into his character that you haven't often got, always got from, you know, the books or, or even, you know, a lot of the football coverage. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, what, what do you think you were setting out to achieve? When, when you started out with this project? It, it's had a, quite a long kind of journey because I read a book about him in
5: the late 90s when I was just after I was a student um, and I remember thinking, wow, what a life. I had no idea you know, where he'd come from or what what he'd been through and the amazing things that he achieved on the pitch but then also just like the chaos off the pitch and the kind of, he puts himself in situations and if everything's great and if it's calm he'll create an argument or fight. So I think that was interesting Uh, and and it was in 98, 99 when I read this book and I remember thinking at the time like, oh wouldn't it be great one day to make a film about Maradona but at the time I was just making short fiction films I never made a doc Um, so this kind of project came and went and came and went a few times and then by the time it it came around again post Amy it was like well I've made these two films about two two brilliant kind of geniuses who who Died really young, and I was like, "Well, if I'm going to do a third one, then it needs to be something different." And actually, what happens if you get old? What happens when you lose the gifts that you've had, and you lose your talents, and you have to deal with some of the things, mistakes you've made in your life, and how how do you deal with growing up? um so I thought that was one of the challenges that interested me in him and his character. Um, but then he's impossible to nail down because he just keeps going. Whenever you think you've got an ending. Something else will come along. And you go, OK, maybe it's this. And then he'll do something else. And do something else. And I've met his biographers and lots of journalists who've followed him for decades. And they're like, good luck. Because that became my question, you know, when we were making the film was, so where do you think the story ends? And they were just laughing. They're like, you know, you can't do it. Because every time you literally press send and you send a book to your publisher, and he will do something next week, which makes the kind of last chapters irrelevant. Yeah. So that was a challenge. How do we end this? How do we do it in such a way where we give it an ending but also leave it open in a way because he will do something as he does continually that throws everything up in the air. You can't say it's about this. Um, So Naples became the centrepiece because it felt like well there was definitely feels like to me there was a beginning, a before and after. He arrives as one person. Um, the kind of vulnerable, innocent kid almost yeah. and then he leaves as, as a very different person and during that, that seven year period he becomes the best player in the world, kind of undisputed wins the World Cup in what you know everyone says is like the best case of a single player taking a team through um, wins a championship in Italy when it was like the most difficult championship and I don't think there's ever been any title that's ever been as difficult as winning the league title in those days in Italy with a club that's never won but then it's also the character of Naples and him and that relationship between Napoli and him and everything that comes with Naples in the 80s. So it felt like that, that was a story and everything that comes after is a sort of a repeated cycle of Naples and everything before it was a minor cycle yeah. of him arriving, being a great hope, does something brilliant, it all goes a bit wrong, he gets into an argument, they don't want him anymore, he goes... He's dead. It's over. Oh, he's made a comeback. Um, so death and resurrection is the way his biographer, Arcuchi, yeah. kind of describes his story. And that's what it is. It's like a, a series of cycles of death and resurrection, death and resurrection and hope. Um, but the biggest one was always going to be Napoli. So it was like, that's the movie.
4: As ever, uh, the, the archival footage is, is kind of breathtaking. And I suppose you must get asked this a lot, but... Where does it come from? How how did it how did you obtain it? And and what what was the process of sifting through all of it, trying to trying to find what the bits that are going to make your movie? So this was like almost, I guess, the beginning of thinking. Okay, there's a
5: movie in this. Is is. Um, this producer Paul Martin contacted me around the time of the London Olympics, 2012, and said, look, there's this archive of Maradona private footage. I think I can access it. And this was just after I'd made Senna. Mm-hmm. And I had a look at about 10, 15 minutes of it. I thought it was really interesting, but I just thought, I've just done a film about this Brazilian hero. I just can't go straight into the Argentinian hero, so the timing wasn't right. But I introduced Paul to James Gay-Reese, who produced Senna and Amy. And they went off and to try to seek out this footage that was somewhere, like an hour outside of Naples, there was this guy that had lots of tapes. Um, And they saw some of it, and they thought this could be really interesting. It's all private footage of shot for Diego. Um, So then they contacted Diego's lawyer and tried to do a deal with Maradona, um, which they were able to do. It was only after that that I got involved. So there were... uh, Diego's first agent, first manager was Jorge Sisterspieler. Do you know who this guy is? It's a really fascinating you know, the, character. The,
4: uh, the Argentinian guy?
5: Yeah, big curly hair and he walked with a limp. He had Abocca, you not know,
4: Argentinian, obviously. He was what? So?
5: Was Abocca? Oh. He, he knew Diego when they were kids. They kind of grew up together. And he was, came from a more middle class, kind of educated background. He's a really fascinating character, which we just didn't have time to get into in this story. But... And they, they were mates from when he was a youth team player. And Jorge essentially did the deal to get him to Argentinius Juniors. He did the deal to get him to Boca. He did the biggest deal ever to get him to Barcelona. And he did the biggest deal again. So he's the first super agent. He like had one client as Maradona. He did the two biggest deals at a time in the world to get him to Barca and to get him to Naples. But he also had this idea that in 81, 1981, he's like, Maradona, he's a star. So he did a deal with Puma. He still has now. He did a deal with Pepsi or Coke, it was Coke. Um, and he says, I think we should make a feature film about Diego Maradona. So he hires two Argentinian cameramen to follow Diego around, on the pitch, off the pitch, and they shot in this old format called Umatic, which is a very 80s kind of um, format. And that's what we've got access to. So the film started shooting in 1981, was never made, was that the first YouTube video? I've yeah. seen a cut of it. Because it's just bits of him doing skill in Argentina's Juniors, Boca and Barcelona. They've, you know, when his leg gets broken, the whole operation has been filmed of him being fixed up and stuff. Oh, um, yeah. Everything, like him give, his wife giving birth, all were filmed, you know. Um, so these guys had access to all areas. So these tapes ended up somewhere with the cameraman, because they probably weren't paid or something. But, you know, Diego leaves suddenly. And these cameramen end up with the tapes but like, don't know what to do with them. They can't use them because they don't have his permission. We can only use it because we have his permission and his image rights. But then we need to, part of the deal was we have access to all your private footage and archives and photographs and you have to give us permission to talk to everyone in your circle. And so that's sort of how it came about. So hundreds of hours are filmed by these two cameramen, two Argentinian cameramen. Half of it was in Naples. We found the other half in a trunk in Buenos Aires, in the back room of Diego Maradona's ex wife Claudia, wow. haven't been touched since for thirty years. So we had to bring this machine to play them over from the UK, the massive machine, that half the size of that table, <laughs> and lug it over there, and the tapes were disintegrating. So I say to Claudia, look, even if you don't want to do a deal with us, this footage is going to vanish forever. Let me just digitize it and give it back to you as a digital file, so at least we've got it. we don't lose it Um, and it was long after that we actually were able to get a deal to actually access it and use it so a lot of the footage came from there and that's not just off the pitch That's when he's on the pitch and he's playing and we have a close up of Diego that's because his own cameramen were allowed on the pitch to shoot it because you know back in the 80s Italian football was that big high-angle shot from the top of the stand. And they had a few cameras, but it's not like now we you have 50 cameras. Yeah. So yeah. those shots where even when he hasn't got the ball, they're looking at him. That's because they were his guys. And they can be right behind the goal. They're in the changing rooms. They're in the tunnel. When he arrives, he has that gladiator shot and he's walking into sign for Naples. Yeah. That's his cameraman. They're in the car with him. So all of that material came from his own private cameraman. Then we always, when I interview people... Everyone has their own personal footage, photographs. This is pre-phones, so it wasn't a lot of that, but there were home movies, like Cloudy had. And then we had news footage and, you know, other kind of footage from Rye or French TV
4: or Argentinian what, TV. At what point do you kind of slip that into the conversation? Like, so you, you, got, any, you got any camcorder? You got any JBC footage? So, so line it normally it's,
5: what happens is I look at, my editor's working away, Chris King is brilliant, fantastic. So he just cuts. I don't tell him what to do, he cuts and I react. But I have my own edit suite and all of the material that comes in from the archive producers, I don't look at it and go through it and I fast forward through it. Part of it is looking at him and kind of looking at Diego because at the time when it arrives, it doesn't have a date on it. So you have to sort of look at it and guess what period is this, right. what part of his life. And you're looking at him and you just start to study his face and his eyes and he looks really happy here. He looks unhappy here. Something's happened. What's gone on? Somewhere in between. And you're guessing the date. But then also you go, Who's that bloke next to him? Who's that? He's always there. Who is that guy? Later on you go, Oh, that's Fernando Signorini, that's his trainer. Yeah. Okay, let's go and talk to him. You talk to Fernando, you go, Fernando, you interview him, meet him in person, explain what you're doing. Luckily Fernando and Senna sorry, Fernando and Diego were big fans of the film Senna. That helped us. They loved that film. So they go, oh right, you made that, okay, great. Um, so I interviewed Fernando, and then eventually go, have you got any pictures? He goes, I haven't got a lot, I've got a few photographs. Okay. So it normally comes after knowing who they are, talking to them, pitching the idea to them, then saying, is Diego on board? And you go, yeah, he's on board, okay, good luck. You know, um, and then I would try and meet with people, and then eventually go, have you got anything? And most people say, no, I haven't got anything. And you go, you never know, because this process is very much like just making a mosaic, You just find little bits of broken glass that look like crap. But then you join them together and you kind of be amazed how they fit. And then you step back and it somehow gives a picture. Um, And that's how it is. So there's never... No matter how small, you never know how useful it might be. And it might be some photographs. It might be a photograph from a wedding. It could be a birthday party. Someone will have a record of something. And we try to piece it all together. It's not always used in exactly the original intention you know you sometimes have to yeah. rewrite it and change it
4: how, how do you organise that all? do you have to have a big wall with her, like a
5: timeline on Amy we had a really it depends on what space you've got I didn't have the space to have, but on Amy we had a massive office that was converting into an edit suite so we did a timeline of her life from like literally when she was born right way through and and every event that happened was just sort of a little piece of paper was cut out on the wall and you look at it and you just get a graph you get a visual representation of someone's life and you go look at that year a lot happened and you look at it and you go that's when Back to Black came out you know you, and then you have a quiet fallow year and you go what happened there and that's the year before Back to Black but that's when everything major happened in her life that's when she met so that was the case with Amy where we did pin it up with Diego I just didn't have the space to do it because we moved offices but there was an element of that which I always do But actually, with Diego, it was more of a whiteboard, which I kind of draw a graph. Similar, a short version of that. These are the key dates. These are the key points. This is when he was playing for this team. And you do the arc of this is when he wins the World Cup. This is when he wins the Scudetto. It's interesting because there's a double peak. Mm. And you go, okay. there's another Scudetto, but kind of slightly diminishing returns. This is when he breaks his leg. This is when he gets divorced. This is when his kids are born. This is when a kid that he doesn't recognise is born. But I'm not interested in tabloid stuff. We're not going to go there but then more and more when, you did a, when I started doing my research I realised that seemed to be a really big thing right. I didn't think that was going to be a part of the story I didn't think I'd want to get into that I'm not interested but actually that I think was the turning point mm-hmm. him not rec- he wanted kids and he wanted a son he's very Latin he wanted his son to be called Diego he has a kid he doesn't recognise it and that coincides with the moment when he wins the World Cup it coincides with him winning the Scudetto but it's also when he starts to change and the problems begin and so that when I draw it on a graph on a whiteboard I can sort of visualise that's the turning point where's it going to end I know there's millions of endings so where do we decide this is when he leaves Naples this is when that I... so I come from kind of an art school background so I need to look at things visually you know. and it's literally because it's a whiteboard I can cross things out add it we need to talk to this person this person these are the themes and it's a lot of it is just like Venn diagrams that like cross
4: over and things yeah. like
5: that and
4: at, at what point did you Did you bring Diego himself into the process? And what was that kind of introduction like?
5: The the, the producer's original deal was access to him, access to his image rights, access to people around him and his family and friends, but also um, the footage. But the deal was uh, three interviews of three hours' length. So that was the deal, contractually.
4: That's That's not a huge amount, you would think. It's not.
5: But that, I think, I, wasn't, I, I don't know where that number came from. I wasn't there for that initial meeting, but it was like, okay, that's not a lot, but let's see, mm-hmm. let's see. You know, My feeling is, it says three, I'll get seven. You know, I always feel like I'll get more. Once people get engaged, they'll talk more, because on Senna yeah. and Amy, it's like, people would say, I don't want to talk to you. I'd be like, give me 10 minutes, and then after, I'd be like, once I get them in a the room, they'll be talking for three hours, I'm sure, because once they start to talk about it, they have to get it off their chest. Yeah. Diego it was trickier just getting to him was not easy we're in London we had it, we were in Clerkenwell at the time. Um, he lives in Dubai at the time he was living on a giant palm tree. Do uh, you know the man made palm tree Oh yes, the island. His, yeah. yeah the islands and the second kind of fond on the left uh-huh. at the end was here where he lived. Um, so just getting to Dubai is expensive and hard. In the first meeting we were there for nearly a week and every day it was kind of there's a reason why he wasn't able to me and it was cancelled and the next day, the next day, and the next day yeah. and in the end we were there for nearly a week, five days and um, there were a bunch of us there, it was costing a lot of money to the budget and I met him for five minutes, we said hello he said, we're going to make a great film, okay, bye and I was like, okay, this isn't going to work so I thought, the only way actually I'm going to do this is treat it a bit more like Amy and Senna where I haven't got the lead character right. I just have to make the film but once I have a film, I'll ask him about a specific questions. So it wasn't a do the interview first, make the film. It was make the film, then talk to him. Oh, interesting. The next time we went along, um, it was better, but he was quite tired and not particularly well, slightly kind of slurry. So, okay, this is going to be hard because I'm not really understanding what he's saying. And we probably had about an hour and a half with him, and then his energy level dropped off. Right. So I thought like, I'm never going to get three hours. So, okay, can I come back tomorrow? and the next day he was better he was actually engaged and sharper and he was enjoying the process um, and we got a good couple of hours with him I felt and, and then again energy dropped off suddenly so three hours actually became like each trip to him we got a good three hour interview and then I'd go away for six months or eight months edit in London, go back again, meet him
4: How much of an impression did you get that he kind of he knew what was going on? I think Nobody really gets what the hell we do. Even
5: people in the industry, when we were making *Senna* and *Amy*, I just don't. So sometimes you kind of feel like, until they see the film, they don't really understand what I'm doing. And I yeah. think he doesn't—he hasn't seen the film yet, so he doesn't really understand what I was doing. And I don't think he—I I always feel like no one remembers who the hell I am, because he must be interviewed so many times. Why would what I'm doing be any different to the 50 other interviews he did that month? Yeah. Um, until I show him something, he won't understand. Uh, so so it was also an element of he's done many interviews from the age of a very young age, 14, 15 he's been doing press He's 60, 60 now so ask him a question about one thing and he'll give me a great story about Seb Blatter and, and I know and he knows that for a lot of journalists I'll be like, that's great, what a headline because he's like I just dropped some bombs there he didn't plan to but he's just really good with language and really clever how he comes up with, he invents terms that become part of the parlance yeah. in Argentina and a journalist have said, you know, he's brilliant, you always know you're going to get your quote, but that's not what I need you know, so I'll come back again back to like the original question and it's I don't want to talk about her, You know, okay, that was one of the easy questions, like, what about this guy, oh you stole from me okay, so then you're like how do I get to the heavy things, so eventually it was really the last interview, I was like I have to talk about these things, and by then we'd worked out a kind of technical process well enough because he did, he's he's kind of doesn't like being doesn't like being held waiting so yeah. if I originally went with one translator I'd speak in English she'd translate to Spanish he'd answer she'd translate to me he didn't like the waiting while I was being given the answer so we had to come up with a way to do the live translation by the time we got to the final interview Diego's sitting on his sofa Lena the kind of translator she translates my answer. My my question to him in Spanish, I had a a Neapolitan sound recordist that I met while I was working in Naples, so he loved Luca because Luca was there watching him, he was a season ticket holder, he was watching him when he was playing, so they got along and he made him really happy and they could talk about the good days in Naples. Then um, I had my laptop, which was like on FaceTime, listening to him answering, which my team were in London. Typing kind of if there were kind of inaccuracies or anything that I wasn't sure about, any kind of fact checking I could type it and they would give me an answer in text. I had a phone dived to Buenos Aires where Laura, one of our brilliant kind of researchers, who speaks Argentinian Spanish and understands Diego's Spanish, was listening to Diego's answer and calling me on another phone which I had in my ear, which she could do a live translation. God. So we were in Dubai there were people listening in London there was someone from Naples and there was someone in Buenos Aires all at the same time just so that I could have a direct conversation with Diego and he could answer but also importantly if he gave me an answer that was going to be 10 minutes about something else I could interrupt him Hmm. because I know I've only got an hour and a half and cut him and say no actually that's not my question and you can see he wasn't used to that
4: yeah what what, what
5: did he get most engaged about talking, talking about he did like talking about his family actually his parents his family his upbringing mm-hmm. you know that was quite powerful actually talking about where he came from and also just the fact of not really contemplating where he was going to end up and this idea of becoming successful and like feeling quite lonely mm-hmm. feeling on his own and not having anyone there for him around him and partly that's kind of the ego of getting to the top and I'm when I get to the top of the mountain I'm on my own there's no one around me but yes. it's also you can see Meaning, no support system, no advice. Um, so remember that—that that was quite an emotional for him. You know, he, he remembers all of the kind of England game and stuff like that, and he talks about that. But he did it in quite a straight way. Um, he was quite open on the first meeting. He said, "I'm happy to talk about drugs. I'm happy to talk about my addictions. You know, I want to try and make something that will help the kids and things like that. I've got to talk about it. this. It's important. But then you get into the detail, and it's like a bit trickier." Um, the first time he didn't want to talk about his ex-wife, but she's a really big part of his life and she was going to be in the film. He didn't want to talk about Jorge, who was the reason he became he got these deals, he's like, you know, so there's a lot of people that he's fallen out with. Yeah. So they were harder, but then he did eventually talk about all of that. And then also dealing with his son, the one that he didn't recognise. Um, all of that was harder, but once he did it was interesting. But I guess his parents are really the thing that he and his upbringing and Via Ferita where he's
4: from was probably where he was most comfortable looking back on his life there. Mm. I mean I suppose coming at it from from the point of view of a sports journalist, uh, you know, I suppose if, if I were if I were making the film, you know, I, I would have liked to have made it more about football. I, mean, yeah. I suppose I'd have liked I Amy to have been more about, about music. But yeah. I suppose there's a balance there between something that, that has a broad appeal that everybody can relate to I mean was that was that a kind of a tension that that you kind of had to, to grapple with a little bit I think I think you know
5: with with this one there was a long cut which had more football We had much more and the weird thing is I love football but when I go to the cinema it's a weird one where there's just this point where the danger is the tipping point of when you get a bit bored of looking at football yeah you know it, it was a it's a really hard balance to kind of give you enough to kind of give the football fans enough for them to see something, but then to also not cut off half the audience. And I feel like partly the challenge of these films is to say, I'm hoping the Formula One fans will go and see Senna, to people who don't like racing and don't like sport, who I think will think this is an amazing character. Yeah. And with Amy, there's only a certain number of songs you can put in because those albums are out there. You can listen to them any time you want. Mm-hmm. But will you ever learn about her, what the lyrics mean what they're actually about unless you understand her story and her character and then you have to make some tough decisions about which songs you drop when we've with football it's like it's a team sport it's a really hard one to make movies about i can't think of many good films about football or dealing with footballers yeah. uh, or, or characters are just interesting aside from what they do on the pitch yeah. whereas he is and his journey is really really fascinating so it is a tough balance. I wish we could have more football because what I suppose I always hope is that you watch the film, you learn about him and then a new group of people will go and look him up on YouTube and go, oh my God, look what he did. Because that's what happened with Senna and Amy. People came out of it who thought they were not interested who then looked and researched themselves. Because it's all out there. It's all available. There's loads of football and loads of stuff of him doing kick-ups and you know, what he did before he played Bayern Munich and you know life is life and all that stuff. It's all there. Just like, You can't put every clip into the movie because it's not dramatically interesting. It's just great because we're football nuts. Um, so it was, a, it was a tricky one. Um, and I guess in the end, you kind of want people wanting more yeah. rather than feeling like they've had too much. Um, it was just finding a way to make the football somehow character-based, which isn't what football necessarily is. But you know, the idea of, really in my mind, the last bit of football in the film... It's a penalty he takes to knock out Italy. Mm. You don't really want to see any football after that, actually. He's carried on playing. He had a career in Argentina and Seville and various things, but actually you have to make a decision. So metaphorically, he knocks out Italy, even though there was a final. It's not that important. That's the turning point. And then where does it begin? And it's like you have to pick one free kick, we you have to pick one moment. That typical week in his life when they win the second Scudetto... Just hearing him talk about his typical week, you know, yeah. how he would go out on these days and then train like crazy, sweat it all off. And you could see, in a week, his body change shape. You know, from being really out of shape because he's been partying, yeah. to being, like, one of the best footballers in the world. It's mad, but you can't sustain that. You can't yeah. do that every week for years and somehow come out the other end. Yeah, I mean, there one of the...
4: I think... I talked about it being quite a harrowing watch at times. Is when you know there's there's obviously a focus on his addictions, uh, his kind of associations with with organised crime, uh, but also kind of his personal interactions. You know, like, yeah. like, like you mentioned, you know the the son that he, he kind of disowned. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess one of, one of the one of the words that cropped up a lot in a lot of the press coverage of, of Amy was was voyeurism. That right. people felt almost like a kind of grimly. Addicted to watching it, like transfixed mm. by what you, call, you might call a human car crash. Mm. Was, was there an element element of that to this? To this, and, and do do you kind of accept that? part?
5: I, I would say, if on Amy, you know, what you're going to realise when you talk to people who really cared about her that that tough period of her life, her last creative act was I think 21, 22, when Back to Black was created. She did a few other things. She died at 27. It was five years of her suffering from addiction.
4: Yeah.
5: Right. It's 20 minutes in the film. With Diego, he left Naples in 1991 and he had a problem. Still going. Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing is, if I'd shown Cuba and I'd shown getting obese, beast, that, that felt like that's the bit where he's not actually a footballer anymore. Mm. So the challenge in this one was, the decision was, we're going to focus on a bit when he was the best footballer in the world and how he started and how he ended. But actually... It would have been... If we'd spent 30 minutes on what happens afterwards, then you're dealing with the life of an addict, which I found... I felt like I didn't want to go there again. Yeah. Um, and it's tough seeing all of that stuff. And that's when he you know, does some of the worst things that he does. It all happens afterwards. Yeah. Starts firing at journalists and... You know, he just does a load of stuff, but that's a person who's suffering. Um, so I'm hoping it's not, but you know, it's a delicate balance. With Amy... I wanted to show it because I wanted to slap the audience around the face a bit and to say, and you lot what all part of this. Yeah. Because we were. Because people were clicking on those Daily Mail pages and they were laughing at her when she, they went to see her in concert and said, you know what, I'll go and see her wife because she's a mess. It's funny and she's going to die soon. So I might as well say I've seen her. And that's how people spoke. People dressed up as her at Halloween while she was alive. So I wanted to deal with that. And it was a challenge, because you're thinking, I'm not sure how this is going to go down with the audience. Mm. But actually, she was humiliated and treated like a joke. And she was like a kid, lost, needing help. Diego's slightly different, because of a... Uh, I'm just getting to try to explain some of the... Um, can we get some water Jack? please? Um, just to explain some of the issues that happened during Naples, which, which led to his bigger problems later on, but they did start somewhere. And there were stories about, oh, we started in Barcelona, but I don't think he had a problem there. He may well have tried stuff out there. He may not have done what he was told, in Barcelona were like, you know, we're Barcelona, you can't treat us. But actually they treated him pretty craply as well. He didn't really have a good time there at all. Whereas Naples, they loved him. I'm hoping we found the right line on, on voyeurism and kind of honesty mm. of what happened, because I think... If you don't talk about it, then you might as well just sit there and watch YouTube videos. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're already out there. They're all great. There's there's amazing ones in Naples, like ten hours of him just playing football. But do you ever learn what
4: happened? I don't know. I think that's what we had to deal with that Yeah. That's our job. Um, just just finally, uh, is there a piece of footage or, or or anything that that you kind of you saw you. gathered that you really kind of wanted to put in the film but didn't didn't quite make the cut?
5: Um, there is, actually, just, we were doing kind of DVD extras a couple of weeks ago, and there's loads of scenes that I've totally forgotten about. Um, I mean, I I like just watching him training, you know, with shoelaces undone, just playing with a ball. It's just amazing. I can watch that all day long, there's loads of it. And that's when he's happiest. Rolling around in the mud, literally, doing overhead kicks or just doing funny things and having a laugh. But there is... The footage we had, we had a kind of a cut scene of him talking about the challenge from Goikechea, and what it sounded like, you know, literally sound of wood breaking, mm. and the idea that I was like, I was seventy meters away from their goal, and he comes and breaks my leg, you know, I'm nowhere near the goal, and he talks about the idea that everyone was saying, you know, this is it, it's over, your career's over at twenty-two, yeah. and he comes back in like six weeks. So that, that sequence was a longer scene where his ankle gets broken. We follow him off the pitch. The cameramen are there. Just how football used to be. It'll be a DVD extra some of this, OK? You'll hopefully see it because it's amazing because they literally, they kind of dump him on the floor in the car park on a stretcher and they're waiting for someone to come and get him. He's the most expensive player in the world and his girlfriend is sitting there with a piece of paper wafting it over him and you can see he's... He's in so much pain and he talks about the operation and he kind of gets taken over by this ambulance that comes that looks like the Ghostbusters car. <laughs> and they take him off and then they film the operation. So we've kind of got all this material. But it's him talking about the ankle break and talking about the fact that it could all end there. Yeah. I and mean, he sounds really vulnerable. And I think that's the point I'm getting to, that most of the people who knew that Diego Maradona really well and have interviewed him over the years said, It's really hard to get him to ever not be the tough guy
4: yeah and they said
5: there's a few moments in your film where you see him looking vulnerable because he was but he never projects that and that was a key moment i guess where it could have all ended before it even began and that's just one of many things that went wrong in barcelona it was one reason i just felt like a cursed time so he hits rock bottom then goes to naples and then our film begins So that sequence, I think, if you see that you just think, my word, most players would never come back.
4: He came back even better and stronger. You know, so that would be a bit... Well, it's it's a great film. film. um, Thank you very much for for making it and thanks for your... Cheers.
1: Thank you very much for that, Johnny. Uh, Really, really interesting interesting interview and we look forward to getting you back on the pod pretty soon. Um, That's it for us today. Thank you very much for listening if you're still listening and... We will be back in your ears next week, I hope. Uh, In the meantime, stay tuned to independent.co.uk forward slash football, uh, where we'll be covering the Women's World Cup, where we've got Mark Critchley out there in France, who's doing a great job, uh, as well as latest news on football all across the world. Thanks very much. Bye.